Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is an interesting one because normally I meet my guests before I ask them onto the podcast because I think they're an interesting person and uh, in this instance the guest was recommended to me and I met him in a cafe with my microphones and we chatted for about half an hour and then I turned the microphones on and we began to speak. And he is an excellent guest. I had a really interesting conversation with him. His name is Callie. That is how he is known. Um, and he is eccentric. I think it would be, I mean, his email signature lists him as a part-time art director, manager, stroller, set designer, ancient cyclist, master dilettante, editor, tourist, fitter, author, road mender, founding member of the Guild of Dabblers and Scribblers, a certified and registered dab handler, a champion yeoman, a runner-up layman, even job man and master of oily seas. So you can tell even just by that, that he is a man to whom stories and mythology and self-mythology are important. But we had a really, really open and challenging and fascinating conversation about everything from food banks to the sustainability argument for stricter immigration laws to uh, footnotes to the historical position of blackface in British dance. It was a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, I enjoyed having it for sure. And um, in case you did not know, I'm always open to be recommended guests for this podcast. So please let me know, alicerhafraser at gmail.com or at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E on Twitter or Instagram. Or if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can send me a message there. Thank you to my Patreon subscribers. You make it possible to do this. You make it possible for me to not run ads and not thereby compromise, you know, my beliefs and in order to keep this thing going and you just make it make me feel supported and in fact factually support me. So I am very grateful for that and I appreciate it very much. But of course I also appreciate everyone who listens, everyone who recommends this show to friends, everyone who tweets about it, um, and everyone who just enjoys the idea of it, I guess, although you wouldn't be listening if you weren't listening. So I appreciate you um, very much. That's it from me. Oh, come to Andy Zaltzman's show at the Soho Theatre. I am sidekicking on that as I did last year. If you're in London, come along to that. Um, It's a blast it'll be very silly and fun that runs from the 18th of december to about the 5th or 6th of january and tickets are on sale online Uh, if you have audible my meditation and neuroscience documentary is up and the one on habit change is coming out soon and the one on wellness is coming out soon as well so there's plenty of stuff there and the trilogy is coming up to 100,000 downloads so everything is feeling good at the moment i feel very happy at the moment it was Uh, the anniversary of my mum's death the other day and, well, yesterday, and I went for a swim in freezing cold water and thought about what a good woman she was. Uh, So I feel, I feel good. I mean, I don't know why I'm, why that should feel like it's an unusual thing. I'm normally pretty, you know, I, I think I'm normally focused on the work that I'm doing and I rarely take a step back to think about how I feel about it other than being satisfied by it. But I feel like, you know, back in 2010, I was miserable. I was in New York. I was an intern and I would run down the road um, after work. I'd go for a run and I would be listening to an audible audiobook, or I'd be listening to The Bugle. And the fact that I am doing both of those things in my life now, that's a moment to appreciate. And I really do. Uh, so thank you for listening. I'll stop rambling. Listen on to my really interesting chat. I'm 
saying interesting too much. Listen on to this chat that I'm having with a man known as Callie. So, first of all, who are you and what are you drinking? Oh, my name's Callie and I'm drinking oat milk cappuccino because I've stopped drinking milk for a year. Why have you stopped drinking milk and why for a year? I think mainly because my daughter stopped drinking milk because she became a vegan, became a vegan. She, she, is, she, is, she has a vegan diet. Yes. And the more I heard about the dairy industry, the, the more guilty I started to get. And I've always been vegetarian, but I thought I'm going to just cut out loads of stuff that I really... I haven't missed it at all. I haven't missed milk, dairy, milk at all. Well, we're living in this kind of world where everyone has accessible, you know, alternatives. Yeah, yeah. Which is a great luxury. Yeah, I don't know if I would have done it if I didn't have oat milk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just very thin porridge, I guess. Mm. Um, You said, you you corrected yourself there, you said your daughter is a vegan, and then you said she has a vegan diet. I really like that distinction, but I want you to explain why you made that distinction. Because my daughter is many, many things. I wouldn't want to say she is identified simply because of her diet i think there's a lot more to her than just being a vegan she just has a vegan diet she, it's, it's to me vegetarianism is a celebration of the fact that we can choose what we want to eat which i think isn't just the most amazing thing because we come from a lineage where diets were pretty restrictive and, and in certain cases incredibly bad but I suppose since the 1960s, my mother's Swiss, so she would cook food that she learned to cook in Switzerland that none of my friends had because they didn't come out of a tin. So we'd have pasta that came in these big, long, purple, paper-wrapped rolls, and my mates would look at it saying, well, what is that? You know, and this is, this is the 1960s. And I remember my dad taking us out for a Chinese meal because a Chinese restaurant had opened in Potter's Bar, you know, near where we lived. And ever since then, it's just been a carousel, really, of dietary choice, which just shows how incredibly wealthy we are, that we can decide to have Italian or Indian or different forms of Indian. Yeah, it's, it, it's, that's a really interesting point, that this access to all sort of broad, broad ranges of food, that we, you know, even poor people nowadays have access to the, a range of food that, you know, kings wouldn't have had yeah. 400 years ago. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a real supporter of food banks. I think, I don't think they should be a symbol of so-called austerity. I think a food bank should exist regardless of whether people can afford to visit them or not. If we're getting rid of a third of all the food that we produce that's just going into a tip, then I think it would be better just to share it out amongst people and and so I, I, I like charity shops and I like food banks and I'm a great supporter of them. I don't think there are, they are necessarily symbols of so-called poverty. That's really interesting. What have you been wrestling with recently? Hmm. Um, immigration, I think. I come from a family of political asylum seekers who were allowed into the country in 1935 because they were... My, my grandmother was a sort of minor German royalty and she married a chap who had gypsy ancestors. 
And she was written to by the then Chancellor saying, you know, you've obviously made a terrible mistake and we can, un- we can divorce you for free, you know, and, do- and clearly that's something you want to do. And she decided, no, she didn't want to. And then it got to a point where they had to get out and they were allowed into this country. Most of their friends weren't allowed into the country or if they were- did come here, they were put on the Isle of Man in camps and they were interned. But the man she married was an electrical draftsman and he had a talent that the RAF wanted. So they were moved to Birmingham and and the reason I live or I'm alive is because my father was their son and they were allowed into this country. And so I've always been a great supporter of political asylum seekers. Um, but I'm having problems with the idea of Labour being able to move from country to country just because there happens to be work, free movement of labour. Mm-hmm. Uh, because scientifically, I feel sustainability of a country, of a village, of a household depends on there being a certain amount of people. And that we ought to have, I think, a very firm, clear immigration policy that makes it clear to everyone this is who will take and this is why you can't just come over here and work mm-hmm. this is incredibly unfashionable you know and I get into fantastic arguments with friends about it uh, but I I'm not saying that I want a Teutonic race well, I can't even use the term race um, parentage based criteria of why you should be able to work but um, I think I've lived through several governments who were too frightened to have a strong immigration policy because they're worried about frightening off people who are maybe first-generation immigrants into this country and losing their votes. And I don't think that's a good enough reason to have a really woolly immigration policy. So do you want to explain to me, for example, what, a, what a, an immigration policy that you would approve of would look like? Um, I don't think I've got that far of knowing what it would look like. I mean, if people are going to come over here to work and pay tax, which is always seen as this is... I'd accept that more if I felt that the tax that they were paying was then going to pay, help pay for their health and for their schooling and for all the other things that tax is meant to pay for. But I felt it really came to me when George Osborne was the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer mm-hmm. I just thought you're, you're robbing migrants of their tax in order to give people tax breaks and that seemed ludicrous to me so it was this open door policy of let's get lots of people into this country because they're all going to get work and they're all going to pay tax that will swell the coffers and none of that tax is going to go onto the National Health Service that seems to me to be a dichotomy that's something that I find very difficult yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting point of view and I haven't heard it before. The argument about immigration seems to be very polarised left to right at the moment and I don't think that there's a lot of these kind of more complex perspectives on it. Mm. People are either using anti-immigration as a proxy argument for more or less racism, whether it's overt racism or whether it's a, a creeping feeling that the increase of immigrants in the country has been correlated with a lowering of quality of public services. Yeah. And so it's less 
less about the racism than ch- just about the quantity of foreigners in using our resources. Yeah. When I say our resources, I'm not British, but uh, I am a foreigner using your resources. Um, well, I think we're all foreigners. I always start from that point of view because obviously my parents were foreigners. My mum's Swiss, my dad was German. Mm. So we were, they were first-generation immigrants. But the more I study history, the, I, I think the idea of Gordon Brown saying we want to start defining what is Britishness. I mean, the term British is a modern term. And so I don't hold with any of that. And that's something I'm not struggling with. I'm very clear about that. The, the idea of there being a national identity, I just find ludicrous. And it's quite offensive at times as well. People might say, well, you're bound to say that because, you know, you're half gypsy and half Swiss. And I think, yeah, I know, lots of people are third this, half this. I think Americans, it's fascinating when you talk to Americans and you realise your family's only really been in America for 150 years. Where did they come from? Wales, Ireland, Scotland, you know, all over the place. Sri Lanka or Ceylon as it was then. Uh, but somebody said to me about our village that we live in the people who protest about things like planning permission Mm. the loudest and the quickest are people who've only just moved into the village yeah you're I think as I I see with my father particularly people who are converts to anything tend to be more extreme than Mm. people who have inherited something in part because they understand what's good about it rather than just accepting it as their bread and butter. My dad became a Buddhist in his 20s and he is a very strict Buddhist, more strict than many people who've grown up in Buddhist countries or in Buddhist families. He has very strong ideas about Buddhism because he had to learn them or he had to learn it or he had to... Yeah. It wasn't passed down to him. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if you were in a Muslim family, for example, and your parents and their grandparents were Muslims and they were living close by or in the same house, or Jewish, you know, it doesn't have to be Muslim. I've got Jewish friends who they question their doctrine all the time. I mean, Judaism is a slight uh, outlier when it comes to the questioning doctrine because part of the doctrine is questioning the doctrine. Ju- like, Judaism yeah. in practice is an ongoing argument. I really like the, way, the layout of the Torah where you have yes. the central text and then you have commentary around yeah. that in, and then you have a, a margin of commentary around yeah. that and then a commentary around that and then the rabbi will argue with everything that's been written down. Yeah. I and can't I, remember who the French novelist was where they found his manuscripts. And that, uh, the, 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 he wrote essays and they went to the publisher who then typeset all the essays. And this would be hand composing in those days. This is probably the 19th century. And they would put the text in the middle of a huge sheet of paper because he wrote so many notes around the outside <laughs> and changed. And all of these, I think it's Montaigne, I think, the essay writer. But the, the hand compositor, the guy who was putting all these little tiny lead letters onto a stick must have been just sitting there thinking what is the point he's going to change absolutely everything and it's interesting to see the workings out I, yeah I, you see that uh, Stuart Lee does a lot of that in his books footnotes and then footnotes and footnotes oh, really? he writes you know he'll sort of describe <laughs> a show and then put all of the references and all of the unpacking underneath it oh, right. I did a little bit of that in my trilogy where I, I put up a three separate stand-up shows as one three-hour show. Uh, right. And I'd performed it as a three-hour show, which meant inevitably that towards the end of it I was skipping 
jokes that I wish I had put in. <laughs> we only had one chance to record it. So in the in the composing of the of the podcasted piece, I just would say, oh, I need to do a studio piece here, and I need. I would describe the joke I'd missed yeah. and why it was important. Uh, you said something earlier on, but this is another thing that I'm struggling with, which is a line to immigration, and it's the use of the word racism. Oh, interesting. And race. Because, I mean, I love language, and I love the way that words change, and I love the fact that we all know what's meant by racism when someone says that's a racist comment. We all know. So there's no point in me saying, but we're all the same race. We're all the human race, so... So I won't argue that one because that's just pedantic. I'll just become Stephen Fry very, very quickly. <laughs> but the fact that I'm not allowed to... I might say something about a particular race, accepting the fact that I can use that. So I might say a general catch-all thing about Jamaicans, for example, mm-hmm. is seen as a racist comment, even though it might not be prejudicing them at all. So... And I, and I look at this with the Labour Party at the moment, with the idea of something being anti-Semitic, uh, almost to the point where it seems to me that criticising the Israeli government is seen as criticising Judaism as, yes. as being... An, or Jews as a whole. And Jews those are three, three separate things, none of which are one thing. Well, Semites just means Arab. You know, again, I'm saying that like Stephen Fry here. Yeah. But I, we all know what is meant by anti... Well, we think we know what's meant by anti-Semitism. So if I say, well, all Jews are mean... Yeah. That is a, that is a racially prejudiced comment. Yes. But if I said, loads of Jews go into the diamond industry or into the legal industry or into the general entertainment industry, because I work in an industry where there is an inordinate amount of Jewish people involved, which is music... Yeah. Um, will people turn around and say, well, that's a racist thing to say? And I think, oh, well, we'd better get more Italians in then just to balance the comment up. Yeah, that makes me think of, like, a couple of things. That make, So one is this idea, there's a sort of an invisible hierarchy of race in the minds of the people who are anti-racist as much as there is in the minds of people who are overtly right. racist. So, for example, if you said Italians are passionate... Yeah, that wouldn't be. Which clearly, they are. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there's because of this, all their hand gestures. Come yeah, on, <laughs> it would be seen as well. That's a cultural, that's a cultural norm or a cultural prejudice or whatever yeah. it is. That's fine, but that doesn't count as racism because Italians fall under this umbrella idea of white privilege or something. Yeah. Whereas, if you said a similar thing about, if you even said the same thing, if you said uh, Senegalese people are passionate, mm-hmm. it would be seen as, you know, um, as feeding into this predominant narrative of African peoples as being animalistic and unrestrained. Instead and of the fact that they're all really good athletes and the men have got enormous penises. Or whatever it happens to be, these kind of generalizations, <laughs> they're loaded by history, I guess. Yeah. And then it, it, comes, it becomes really interesting and, and sort of fraught when you talk about things like Jewish people who are simultaneously an incredibly historically oppressed group and also in some ways uh, a group that has a lot of privileges. Yeah. So I mean, I dance in a, in a dance troupe called Old Glory. We're Molly dancers. 
What are molly dances? Molly dances, it's an East Anglian tradition. And it goes back, it does go back hundreds and hundreds of years where ploughboys who are out of work in December and January, the months where the fields are frozen or flooded, had to get money. And one way that they could get money is the Lord of the Manor would just, if he can, if he agreed, you know, he would give you a bit of money so you could have beer and bread and feed the family. So what ploughboys used to do is go out and dance. And they would dance and demand money with menaces. And if you didn't pay them any money, they would come and plough your front garden up or whatever. <laughs> but if the lord of the manor saw you dancing, he would just say, you know, I know who you are and I'm not going to give you any money this Christmas. Uh-huh. And the dancing is clumsy and it's a heavy step and it's hobnail boots. And in fact, um, T.S. Eliot writes about it in one of the four quartets. Um, and it's fantastic to do. I but the love disguise, the idea of a menacing dance troupe. No, it's It's physical. like West Side Story <laughs> made real. It's, um, and it's meant to be a clumsy, heavy step, and the hobnail boots are really heavy. And there's, so, it's, um, so we dance at night under torchlight, but our faces are blacked up because they always were blacked up. Because if you, if you paint a face black, you lose so much of the characteristic, characteristics of what a face is. We never smile. Because if you smile and you see the gaps in the teeth, it's, it's like a barcode. So this is something that people have accepted for years, that molly dance troops go out and they have black faces. And mm-hmm. some Morris sides saw this, border Morris sides, and thought, oh, we want to black up as well, it looks great. So they would black up. And David Cameron posed with a load of Morris dancers who had black faces, and he got absolutely vilified for because people confused that blacking with the black and white minstrels. Now, the black and white minstrels have big white lips, big white eyes, jazz hands, you know, and um, uh, straw boaters and all of that. And it was almost always white people dressing up as blacks because blacks weren't allowed on the stage. So that was utterly wrong and offensive and horrible. But we're stuck with this dilemma of if people start to think that what we're doing is racially prejudiced... It's going to take everybody's mind off the actual dance and the tradition itself. And for years, Molly dancers have said, well, look, we're not blacking up. We're not trying to be Negroes. Mm. We are, this is a tradition of disguise. Guising is you know, a big thing throughout Europe. You either wear masks or you, you paint your face. Or, uh, so we're going through that dilemma at the moment. I think there is an easy answer to it, but it does mean breaking with tradition. What do you think the easy answer is? Very, very dark green makeup. Camo. Is, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Because then we'll look... Yeah, I don't... I think, like, language changes, like these words have to change, like yeah, well, the word racist now means something other than what it's meant to mean. I think I, I like the fact that traditions move. Yeah, I mean, I think it is really interesting because there's there's a question of whether if a word changes its meaning or if a, if the associations to, for example, blacking up your face mm. have changed, even if you don't mean something offensive, if somebody is likely to take offence from it, is it worth continuing to do it? Do you hold your ground yeah. or do you concede to the person who is offended? I think that's a more fraught question than it sounds on its surface because... <laughs> You know, on its surface, you go, well, of course I'm not going to do something that's going to offend somebody. But offence is also a moving target. Yes. And there is an element to which some people look to be aggrieved or some people will maliciously misinterpret something yeah. on behalf of somebody else. It's difficult to that's, assess. That's what I love about offence. 
it's almost like I want I want to print up some cards that just have the word offence on. So if someone can just take one from me if mm. they choose to take offence. So even if you don't feel offended, yeah. you can take offence. Yes. And, some, and people do sometimes say, hold on, this is an opportunity for me to be offended. And I would say, do you actually feel offended? No, but I'm taking offence. And you want to give them a card and say, here's an, here's an offence card, please take it. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of, I'm so uh, on this razor edge myself because on one hand, I really don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Yeah. I don't want to injure anyone. I don't want to feed into damaging you know, narratives or power plays or anything. But I do want to have interesting conversations and I do want to talk about difficult subjects. Yeah. And the more that subjects become off limits, not necessarily attitudes, but even even the idea that you should be able to discuss whether something is offensive or not is yeah. sometimes seen as offensive. Yes. And that feels really uncomfortable to me. Yeah. I worry about that. I think... Um just as I was saying about diet, that we, we now have this incredibly exotic diet and we don't starve. And there's almost no reason to starve because you can always get food from... My, my son lived on the streets for two years and he lived in Norwich on the streets and he said it's pretty good, actually. You know, you live in Norwich on the streets. You can get lots of food. You can, there's lots of different ways that you learn. But in the same way, we, we don't hang people anymore. You know, we don't. We 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 realise that capital punishment is probably not a very good thing. So let's stop doing it. And so, I think the country was better by not hanging people mm. than than it was when we were hanging people. So I don't feel that tradition or traditional things have to be dogmatic. I think that these things all can can get better. Yeah. Nobody would go. Nobody would dare. I don't. I don't think anyone would dare put a black and white minstrel show on Which with white good. people. Black and I think it's fantastic. I saw this. My friend collects um, photos in New York, mu- music-based photos, mm. and she had this fantastic um, collection of minstrel uh, photos from New York of, of performing groups, and she had a lot of, of white guys blacked up performing as minstrels and they all stand there you know with a drum in front and everything and their faces all blacked up and they all look very sharp and and uh, they look like your average i don't know middle class new york white person's idea of those friendly little black guys that sing these great songs then she had photos of harlem mm. minstrels in harlem these were black people who had put big white lips on them and they were looking, the black people were dressed up like white people dressing up as black people. But the really remarkable thing was their clothes were really, really tatty. Some of them didn't have shoes on their feet. But that was a way that black people could put on a show up in Harlem that people would go and see this show and they were dressing up as white people, dressing up as black people. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that if to me follow is... that line. Yeah. <laughs> People are incredible. People are wild. I want to go back on two things, circle back around on two things. One was the idea that you mentioned before about Jewish people going into particular industries and stating that being seen as anti-Semitic when, you know, I'm sure you know the history of why Jewish people end Mm -hmm. up in intellectual industries Mm -hmm. and it's because they were not allowed to do other things. And so they were pushed into these, you know, 
into these industries that didn't involve labour in part because they were not allowed to do normal jobs and we're just sort of lucky as people with Jewish heritage that those jobs, you know, intellectual jobs have become more important, culturally speaking. Yeah. But, you know, money lending and I think per capita the biggest pogrom that's happened happened in the UK, I think in, in well, well, what was then England in the 13th century, in Lincolnshire, where Jews were just rounded up and, and butchered. Mm. And, uh, and this was seen as a really bad thing. And it was also a large part of the population within this area of Lincolnshire was just completely wiped out. And through the usual reasons of they've come over here, they're controlling their money lenders, they're controlling this, they're controlling that, it's all wrong. And if we just kill them, then it will stop. And so the, the solution to it was, no, no, you can't kill them, but they all have to live together and they have to wear a yellow star that's sewn onto their clothing. Now, this is in the 13th, 14th century. Mm. So this wasn't lost on the National Socialists, where mm. they said, well, if you're gay, you're going to have a pink star. If you're Jewish, you're going to have a yellow star. Because they were pulling all of these incredible strands from history that were visually very potent. And so, you know, you, if you were Jewish, you could only shop in Jewish shops in Berlin in 1936 you couldn't just wander into somebody's jewelers and say I want to buy this it was it was it was sectioning people off in a really um sinister but efficient manner yeah I I mean yeah this is an incredible thing that people have the ability to do so think about in a record company in London Mm. uh chap running that record company is Jewish and he, he his uh, friends and relations are Jewish and one, say his nephew is quite bright and he's coming up through the University of College and the uncle says, you should come and work with me at uh, Warner Brothers wherever this could be seen as jobs for the boys, you know, this could just be but obviously he's just saying, well he's my nephew and he's quite bright and he could come and work with me and and so there isn't this kind of no no you've got to put the the job out the tender and you've got to employ the best person for the job it may be termed as nepotism which again has a real negative negative thing and there are these massive downsides to nepotism but equally the reason that nepotism has lasted for so long is that if his nephew's doing a bad job he can call his brother and go mate you need to get him in line yeah and there's a there a, is an element to that, but it's also who, you know, if you're a labourer and you're Irish, and you come over and you start to work for Murphy's over here, as, you know, that's where navvies came from, that's where a lot of construction workers come from, is they come from Ireland, because you make a phone call to your uncle saying, "Are oh, there any jobs going?" And the uncle says, "Yeah, you come over to Birmingham because we're building the M1, and you can come and help build the M1." You phone your uncle. You don't phone somebody out of the blue. Yes. And, and, and then on the other hand, you know, as somebody who's in an industry that is dominated by non-me type people, I'm a comedian. And, you know, traditionally, it's starting to shift now. In, the, in, in my time doing it, it has started to shift. But it, people would hire the people for gigs who they knew or oh. who they found funny. And that's a much yeah. more difficult one. That's a much more interesting one because if you're a booker of course you're going to hire someone who you find funny but you not, might not be thinking about why you find them funny 
if they reflect, right. you know, if they speak the language that you understand, if they have the reference points that are native to you, you will find them yeah. funny. And you'll be able to get on with them in a back in a back room, in a green room somewhere. You'll be able to have I a chat. I never thought of that. You know the same people. Because you... Jewish jokes are a thing in their own. Yes, they absolutely and are. And I find them incredibly funny. Not being Jewish, but I just find them... I like the idea of them, you know, and listening to Woody Allen's stand-up. I just from the early 60s. I Do you think... know Ivor Dembina? Do you know Ivor Dembina? No. He's, a, he's an old Jewish comedian, and uh, I've had him on the podcast before. He's very old-fashioned, very classic. Like, the kind of emceeing he does is the kind of emceeing that was being done in the 70s. Yeah. Like, really, I don't think he's changed a single one of his jokes since then. <laughs> but he has an hour show called Old Jewish Jokes. Oh, I've uh, heard about that. Which is just old Jewish jokes. It is no more and no less than... Uh, yeah. the, the, and it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. I mean, he didn't write a show, but it's a lot of fun to watch, especially as somebody who has this kind of Jewish. But heritage. you've got to understand the you've got to understand the context, the Jewish mother and the Jewish father. You've got to understand what the family is about. Just as if you watched Alf Garnet, you had to understand what the East End language was about and why this incredibly bigoted, racist guy was actually really funny. If you didn't understand it, if you just landed in the country and you watched it, you'd just say, this is horrible. He's being horrible about everybody. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what was the other thing I wanted to circle back on? I can't remember. I've lost my, I've lost my thread. Maybe, no, it wasn't, but well, let's mm. talk about food. What have you been thinking about food? Oh, well, the, <laughs> uh, I fall into a cliche of someone who buys your Tamatolenghi's book. Oh, yes. And I get as much reading about the nature of the food as I do then going off and cooking it. And I love how specific it is about the food. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like magic for me. You know, cooking is like conjuring. And I'm not... Um, Jenny, my wife, is, I think, a... She doesn't really... She looks at the recipe and goes, yeah, I can, I can improve on that. And it's always amazing. And... I don't work like that. I have to have the recipe out and going, hold on, six grams of this and 12 minutes on this. And, you know, I, uh, I haven't got that talent. I think skill is one thing, following someone else's talent, that sort of language talent. The that's, difference just between craft and art, maybe. Oh, I don't know. That's another one. <laughs> because when I was at school, I wanted to become a commercial artist. That was a term, meaning you sketched or you drew or you did whatever, but you earned money from it. And I went to art school, and you would never use that term at art school. But I've realised that what I've done all my life is become a commercial artist, and I would not call myself an artisan. You know, I, I, I find those terms. A maker, I find that quite a cloying. Yeah, well, I, I cringe away from storyteller. Ooh. Because to me that talks about someone in a sort of an asymmetric scarf and, you know, feature... (laughs) Talking to children. Well, see, storyteller is a particular kind... I mean, I don't know what put that prejudice in my mind. I think Mm -hmm. I probably spoke to somebody or a couple of people at a formative period in my life who were just absolute wankers who called themselves storytellers. Yeah, Yeah, I know a few. But, yeah, that that idea. And, you know, I was a a poet. Uh, I still write poetry, but... I, I wanted to be a poet, and you, you see know. that's something 
I would pick you up on. I wanted to be a poet, well, as w- opposed to I wanted to write poetry. I always did write poetry, but I wanted, I thought I wanted to be a poet. And then I went to poetry readings in Sydney around the university and I thought, I don't want to be one of these people. So I'll still write poetry, but I'll never never identify myself as a poet. When I I meet musicians and people come to me and say, well, look, I'm looking for management or I'm looking for helping, I, I always ask that question, do you want to be a musician or do you want to play music? The two are almost mutually exclusive. And I tend to be more interested in the people who just want to play music. They turn out to be musicians a lot of the time, and they often turn out to be really successful musicians. But I, th- I always think someone like Joni Mitchell, it's almost like she never wanted to be a musician. She just wanted to play music and seems to have kept that going for year, you know, year on year on year. I think she's never really said, what does a musician do here? You know, so I, that's, that interests me far more. Then, if somebody said, I want to make chairs, I love chairs, I just want to make chairs, mm. and I know somebody who does, you know, they just make the most fantastic chairs, they would never call themselves a chair maker or a maker or an artisan or any of that terminology that seems to have sprung up because you just feel you're falling into that. Oh, I don't, it's a bit unfair to say because I think people who are artisans who don't just bake bread but they make artisanal bread yeah. I mean good luck to them and everything and I love it, you know, I still eat their sourdough and stuff. Yeah, there's something about that is that you value being seen to be making the thing as much as you value the thing that you're making or yeah. the process of making it. Yeah, you grow the right beard before you start baking the bread Which is, yeah, and that becomes even more uh, sort of loaded when it's something like music or comedy or performance where you require an audience. You require, you need to be seen to be doing the thing in order to do the thing. Mm, yes. And um, yeah, but I've got friends who are incredibly funny. I mean, we go out and we're in a pub and we just laugh till we're crying. They're not comedians. Oh, They're no. just incredibly Most funny. Most comedians are very serious people. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll probably think of a few comedians that I think this person isn't a comedian. They're just very funny. But I can't think of any right off the top of my head. I don't know. Maybe David Sedaris is that. Maybe he's just David Sedaris, and he just happens to be. He happens. To, I happen to think he's. He's what very he does. funny. Yeah. It makes me laugh. Yeah. I mean, okay. So this has been such a good conversation. I sh- we should wrap up because there's going. We're in a, a theatre cafe, and it's about to get very crowded because oh, yeah. there's going to be a play on. Um, so where can people find you if they want to find you, or can they not? Uh, I have a website which is www meaning world wide web dot antar a n t a r dot c c dot c c yeah that's an unusual suffix it's I think the Caicos Islands amazing but my initials are c c so it seemed like and it also means cycle club and cubic centimeters and so it's a it's a good one to have oh brilliant thank you so much thanks for coming on the You're podcast very nice talking to you.
This stuff is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle, day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle, day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifles all, lousy rifles day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day.